0: The audio for this episode is going Let's just say it's all be consistent throughout the episode. Yeah, we, like we're having bad. a bad audio day.
1: Yeah, yeah, bad audio day. We yeah. didn't figure it out. Um, well, the
0: construction work outside has stopped.
1: That's true. Although now it's busy. cars driving. Yeah, so so now I'm it's back go.
0: to being a functioning roundabout where people. Yeah. Who don't know how to use a roundabout?
1: <laughs> no church being
0: bells. Hulked by people I'm who no don't kidding. know how to use a gun. Yeah, little Easter eggs for
1: everybody. Whenever we do an interview, if you listen carefully, you'll be able to hear—I don't know—people getting in arguments, yelling, church bells going off, construction people. When we talked to Bobby. From tipping pitches at a certain point, you can just hear, like, road rage outside. Some guy honks, and it's like, fuck you. (laughs) It's like, ah. Yeah, if (laughs) anybody
0: imagines that we live in, like, merry quaint England, where, like, everybody's very pleasant and nice to each other. Hobbiton. Yeah, 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 yeah. No. Yeah. Well, what are you going to do? Prime road rage spot. Speaking
1: of systems not working as they should, Dan. (laughs) um, Wow, do we have a banger for the dear listener today. Am I right?
0: You are entirely correct. <laughs> um, I think this is one of the pieces of podcasting material I'm proudest to have been a part of releasing into the world. I thought you were going to and... say piece of podcast history, and I was like, oh, oh. <laughs> I don't know about that. I wouldn't go that far. <laughs> um, and our, our, our contributions to it are minor and meager. Yes, because they um, be. we have a titanic guest. <laughs>
1: As big as they come, ladies and gentlemen. Um, Yeah, we spoke to June Reith from General Intellect Unit. And this is insane. General Intellect Unit has been, like, one of my favorite shows for a very long time. I always feel like I kind of don't understand a lot of what's going on. But what I do understand, oh, it's very good. Mm -hmm. Um, So that show is June and uh, Kyle. They both rock. Um, Dan and I have both been listeners for a really long time. And we managed to get um, June herself on to kind of, like, lecture us on... Systems theory, viable systems, organizing, and um, why we should all uh, burn our count scheme. That's <laughs> my words, not hers, but you know, what are you going to do? And I will be honest, Dan, you're absolutely right. This rocked. This is like one, yeah, maybe the best thing we've ever done. We didn't really do too much. so yeah, that's just probably why it's so excellent. <laughs> exactly.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. This is such a good, like, comprehensive introduction to so many of these ideas. Um, ones that can be so difficult and off-putting and not only are does June make them so comprehensible in her sort of like uh, opening pitch for Mm. explaining these ideas to people but also makes them incredibly relevant Um, and I think you and I both feel incredibly enthused and inspired to go and vastly expand our <laughs> realms of yeah. knowledge and understanding of how the world works.
1: Yeah, and Try and get
0: out of our little like uh, Marxist <laughs> ghetto a little bit.
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah fully energized. Um, couldn't suggest June's show anymore, so everyone, of course, go check out General Intellect Unit. If you want to watch us uh, be awkward interviewers, you can watch us on YouTube. We'll be putting up the full video interview on there. Um, but yeah, I can't really stress enough how thankful we are to June for her coming on, for taking the time, um, and sorry this episode's a bit late, but it's 150,000% worth it because this is some of the most enlightening stuff I think I've ever spoken to. Like, yeah, it's just awesome. Yeah, We're yeah, really yeah. Great. If,
0: you, if you don't already do it, check out General Internet Unit. Yes. Uh, listen to all of the Emancipation Network podcasts. I'm yes. sure you all already do. Mm. Um, but yeah, go yeah. check it out.
1: Go check it out. And uh, without further ado, don't listen to us, Babylon, anymore. Uh, enjoy the interview. All right. Well, Jane, thank you so much for coming on. Um, I think Dan and I, we've both been listening to your show for a while, and we've both been inter- interested in like <clears throat> systems theory and cybernetics in general and how it kind of relates to socialism and Marxism for quite some time. And I think it, just to get us started, if you could kind of give us a rundown what it is you think about cybernetics specifically and kind of Marxism and socialism in general that is able to um gel so well together if it does in europe i mean i would imagine it does
2: (laughs) yeah it does um it's uh i I sometimes think like um i've I've spent too long thinking about this stuff and it's kind of like congealed into a weird nexus in my brain that like makes sense to me but like is very hard to explain to anyone um but my, my elevator pitch for it is that um uh when when we hear the word cybernetics we usually think some sort of like terminator style like cyber gothic domination or whatever and that's not what actually the w- word refers to um the word comes from uh the greek kybernetes which is steersmanship um and it was coined the, the term was coined by norbert Wiener in the 50s as he was coming out of like um like during world war ii he was working on stuff that was based like automated gun turrets and targeting systems um for the war effort, and while working on that, he, he kind of came to the realization that like the only way to make these kind of like automated targeting systems effective was to have them operate on feedback, so that like basically the the device would pick a plan for like adjusting its trajectory, and then compare its own performance against its plan, and then use that as like an error correcting signal. Um, this made. And he he then started riffing on these ideas of like, it's kind of like learning. It's like machine learning, this sort of stuff. Um, He started tying like feedback in with like how organisms learn. And then he realized, oh, this is actually how brains work, right? That like they use error correcting feedback and how it's how a nervous system works, right? That like, um, which is what that's how you get to like the colloquial uh, notion of cybernetics that like having a robot arm is a cybernetic device because it's like self correcting and self guiding um and and that's because our arms are self-correcting and self-guiding right that like the um the nervous system uses feedback internally to stabilize its own relation and so then the reason he used the term steersmanship for this is that it's it it's a kind of field that's all about self-steering um goal-directed systems whether they're organic or mechanical or purely informational and all that sort of stuff um after Norbert Wiener you get like these elaborations of like um Ross Ashby is a guy who was like really into like neuroscience and cybernetics and then you know like our favorite person Stafford Beer who was like kind of tying all that stuff in with like human social organization um, and how organizations operate and how they stabilize themselves how they do goal-directed behavior and he kind of realized that like You get the same kind of behaviors all the way up from the ground, right? Like a a cell is a little kind of cybernetic machine that uh, stabilizes itself in an environment um, and has these error correcting signals to, to keep itself going. And then tissues are made up of cells congealed together with, you know, error correcting feedback. And then an organism is made up of many tissues with a nervous system to do error correcting feedback and all that kind of stuff all the way up the chain. And then organizations of organisms, kind of the same principle replicates all the way up. Um, as for like why all that stuff is relevant, it's like, um, uh, I mean, we're, we're definitely not the first people to, to realize this, this is actually kind of an old take, but like um, when you read Marx's Capital, you see a lot of like proto-cybernetics in there. I mean, ar- arguably like Hegel Hegel's kind of philosophy is a kind of proto-cybernetics. Um, like dialectics is a kind of like baby's first systems theory in a way. You know, um, <laughs> can
1: I can I speak to expand on that real quick on what you mean by that by about like how its kind of or, or, origins are in Hegel.
2: Yeah, so I mean, um, in some ways you can kind of clearly see the some of the um, cyberneticians are kind of riffing on like vague sort of Hegelian notions, but like um, uh, like with Hegel's turn towards like seeing the like. Um, the like kind of entanglement of the subject and the system and stuff like that, you start to get towards what would become cybernetics, right? Like, and uh, beca- again, like because cybernetics is concerned with these like highly complex autonomous systems embedded in an environment and being among other autonomous complex systems, and you know they're all co-emerging together, right? Like, it's it's that kind of uh, that sort of thing going on there. Um, I mean, in, in Marx, like you have like the uh, like the way capitalism actually works, and the way Marx describes it, like is in basically cybernetic terms, right? Like that it has a positive feedback loop from M to C to M prime, and and so on. That's like a, um that's a feedback circuit. It has ways of keeping itself on the rails um, with compensatory mechanisms, and um, and so on and so forth. And like why we think all this kind of stuff is relevant is that. Um, I think like uh, Marxists are often kind of trapped in like lingo and like conceptual frameworks from two centuries ago, and it kind of does turn out there 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 is like a science of complex adaptive systems, and you know you can just kind of and again as I said like the kind of dialectics being like a you know my first systems theory, like we can graduate to the actual systems theory. <laughs> um, and it's a, it's a fruitful thing to do. Yeah.
1: Yeah, no, definitely. And like,
2: yeah,
1: I, I don't know, it's something that I was going to ask you actually, and this is kind of dipping into mm-hmm. the book that we read, which I'm still kind of trying to wrap my head around the Matt mm-hmm. and book book. Um, I was wondering if you would actually consider capitalism to be, if not a viable system, like maybe an poetic system, like is mm-hmm. it a system that is actually able to like, Constantly and dynamically, like adapt and keep itself going, or mm-hmm. like the notion of all of these constant crises and um like contradictions kind of counteract that,
2: yeah. I mean, it, it's a bit of both, right? Like, I mean, um, I think uh, yeah, like capitalism is evidently a system that's pretty good at like adapting and moving itself along and like stabilizing itself, um like when, when we use the term viable system, that's like from Stafford Beer, right? Like he he kind of had, had this like viable system model for thinking about organisms and society of societies of organisms and like any kind of goal-directed like system that exhibited this property of like stabilizing itself internally and then stabilizing its relationship with an environment and like having this goal-directed behavior would be a viable system. And like he puts the emphasis on viability. For like can this thing per time and again the steersman metaphor like can this steersman navigate across the ocean while keeping the boat upright and keeping itself alive that that's what that would be the criterion of viability and like for for beer the like uh, archetypical viable systems were like organisms like human beings and rabbits and stoats and all those kinds of things um in that, in general, like they're pretty good at navigating their environment and adapting to threats and responding dynamically to things, keeping themselves stable, like they have like critical variables they keep within certain bounds, like your blood volume is a critical variable that you try to keep fairly stable. But that's not to say that something couldn't happen to it that would like like if, if you go and shoot a rabbit, you couldn't really say that it wasn't a viable. Organism. Like well, you made it not viable. Or you know, you know this sort of thing. Or if the rabbit wandered off a cliff, it's like, yeah, okay, it got itself killed, but like it it clearly had this like internal coherence and internal loop that was keeping it going. But that's that's also not to say that like disaster is not possible. Um and like um and again, like we're we're not like the first people to observe that capitalism has these characteristics. I mean, Marx observes that. It's a big, uh, it's a huge focus for like Deleuze and Guattari in like the seventies, where they're like, "Hey, this this fucking techno capitalism stuff seems to be like super good at like doing feedback and keeping itself on the rails to our detriment." You know, it's like if you think of like what are the, like, what are the core variables that capitalism keeps keeps going right? It's the rate of profit and the um, and the, the structure of class society. Uh, so that's that's a machine that's tuned to keep those variables within bounds right um, but that's that's totally not related whatsoever to what we want you know like that um, it's say like, like you, know, you, you could like you can have a pathological machine that uh, keeps itself upright and keeps itself on the rails even though you really don't want it to be <laughs> um, and it can also it can encounter crises that it, that are overwhelming for us. Or it can also adapt to crises. Those are kinds of things. Um, And anyway, the reason why all that is relevant is that, like, you know, there's a long history of Marxists trying to think about capitalism's apparent stability and its apparent, like, tendency towards crisis and wondering what would actually knock this thing off the rails. And, like, so there's, there's two big questions like, what would possibly put an end to this thing? And also, when we observe that it does recover from crises, can we explain how and why it did that? And um, you're not gonna get a lot of that by kind of poring over Grossman forever, like in terms of answers to that. Like, I mean, Grossman did a lot of work to kind of advance a the theory of that, but like you can look to systems theory as in like, there is there is a science of adaptive systems and a feedback-driven, uh, goal-driven systems, both like mechanical, organic, and social that we can look to. And, and you know, we, we can kind of admit that like, you know, uh, I don't know. I, th- I think Marx would have enjoyed cybernetics. You know, if he if he lived long enough to see it, I, th- I think he would have recognized it immediately. As like, oh, that's what I was trying to say all along. You know. Um, and I think yeah. like, the thing, the thing we, we implore Marxists to do on the show, right? Like, I'm Kyle and I are dying in the Marxists, but we we absolutely implore our comrades to just like go read a fucking book that's got nothing to do with Marxism. <laughs> like, You know, read, read a read a book that's a sci- that's about a science of things that are extremely def- relevant to us. <laughs> like this this def- is the most relevant thing in the world, but it's, it's we kinda... definitely fall into that category of
3: like <laughs> we'd like to expand our reading and our spheres of understanding, yeah. but also like find ourselves perhaps by the the
2: other podcasts that we interact with kind of funneled into certain yeah. spheres of understanding.
3: Been...
2: Yeah, you kind of climb out of the gravity well of um
1: <laughs> uh, <laughs> of
3: yeah, reading, just...
2: you know.
1: Yeah, i had seen something that you uh, tweeted not too long ago about uh, <laughs> imploring people to stop reading Kautsky and read some Sun Tzu. I think, is that kind of like what
2: yeah. you really care about? Let's like read anything yeah. Well, we, we, had, we had just finished recording the last of the uh, John Boyd series, which is like um, military strategy stuff. And like John Boyd was hugely influenced by Tzu, and like... It's it it, a a real short TLDR on that is that like there's a certain style of like relating to conflict that is like evasive for a lot of history, Um, but before that like that's that's the like really bad way of doing conflict, and then before that you have Schwanze who got it completely completely right, and then afterwards you have like Blitzkrieg onwards, which is like also starts to get it right again, but that um. A lot of the way people think about conflict, not just in terms of like actual military, military stuff, but like the way people I mean Jesus, even socialists model conflict, is actually kind of rooted in this like bad period of theorizing. Uh what um uh of like, uh, like that. Klauswitz, yes. Yeah. So it's it's the Klauswitzian sort of thing, which is just totally nonsensical and horseshit. Like and like I mean, even down to things like our um a lot of our political parties are kind of modeled on the um I mean, especially like the Leninist stuff is modeled on like the the Prussian staff model of like military leadership, which is just totally invalid. Like it 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 didn't even work at the time, you know. And it's our way of thinking about conflict is all stuck in this like Clausewitzian mindset, and we're like perpetually like at least a half a century out of date in our way of thinking about things. So like when when I was just I was buzzing after finishing that recording, I was like, God damn it! Like it's like. And put this shit down go read read some Schwanza or something, you know. Um, it's like I don't know. I, I I like being inflammatory like that. I mean, I, I have another kind of line that I keep repeating to people that like most socialists would be better off reading about thermodynamics than almost any like left theory. Like it would be a better like foundation for your understanding of the world, you know? Yeah, but you, um, could you expand on that? Because like
1: you do see a lot of people now in what Marxist organizations exist. Either just mm-hmm. re attempting to rehash, or just like rehashing ideas that like, hey, maybe actually didn't work. So it depends on what you mean, by like reading mm-hmm. science.
2: Yeah, because I mean, um, I, I guess a, way, a short way of putting it would be that there were there were a lot of like huge conceptual leaps forward in our like understanding of the world and understanding of both like in our understanding of the physical world. And of like how systems in the world generally work that happened in like the like the 20th century, the are mostly the early 20th century. But like, um, because a lot of our kind of like our our favorite boys all kind of had their time before that ever became apparent, um, we kind of miss out on stuff, or well, let's just say that they missed out on stuff, um, that then we miss out on because we're just not paying attention to it. And like Uh, I'm talking about kind of basic stuff like um, concepts like entropy and like the understanding of how energy actually works in the world and like um, which I mean that was around like the the early moments that were kind of around for like Marx's time because like it's with the development of steam engines and stuff that people start really studying that kind of thing Um, but like a lot of those lessons hadn't been fully absorbed I mean they usually aren't for at least a generation afterwards right Information theory is a huge, huge thing um, that just doesn't usually show up in stuff. And again, like if if Marx had just lived forever, like if he was some sort of vampire, I think he would have been all over information theory as soon as it landed. You know, he would have been devouring the like Shannon papers uh, immediately as soon as they landed. You know, um, so I think yeah. I think like we we should what we should be doing as like. If, if if we intend to change the world for the better, which we did, right? Like let's, let's just say we're all on the same page there, right? Um, it behooves us to like actually understand the world, actually understand what human beings are, understand what organisms are, understand what energy and information system are, understand what societies are, um, and you know, I mean, we can also then apply a kind of you know a, a Nice layer of frosting of our, our good old dialectics and our kind of like political economy on top of that kind of understanding. But like, um, I don't know, there's, there's basic science stuff that we probably need to be paying more attention to um, because it kind of it can inform action more than a lot of the stuff we, we usually read does, you know?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I really mm-hmm. found your conversations on John Boyd and conflict as really enlightening
2: mm-hmm. because.
1: You're talking about splits and stuff is just this, like, have more force hit place with less force. And when we mm-hmm. you have more force, it's like, oh, wow, that might have worked up to a certain point, but, like, is that really what we're expecting <laughs> in some sort of, like, transitionary phase? Um, I think, like, maybe I mean, going off of that, like... Oh, go ahead.
2: Yeah, I mean, like I mean, you, you say that in jest. Like, is that is that what we actually expect of a transitionary phase? And the kind of upsetting answer is that for a lot of people, kind of, yes. As in, like their kind of understanding of these things is actually that poor. <laughs> you know, well, that's and how that's my like kind would that of... too,
1: right? Like how horrible Rural, would that yeah. be if it, was just, it would yeah. just be like, oh, okay, the world's over now.
2: <laughs> yeah. you're like oh, like to, to, to clarify for the listeners, the distinction we're talking about there is that like uh, the Klauswitsian model of like war and conflict is basically identify the enemy's center of gravity, like their fortresses and stuff, and then just fucking throw everything at the wall. Just like Treat your treat your forces as if they're just like a fucking three D printer that like emits um people and weapons and just fucking shove all that shit at them until they're completely destroyed. And not only is this a, actually a really in re- on in retrospect a really bad way to strategize, it also like that that mode of thinking generated the like horrific massacres of World War One and and two and such right? that. Like this, it's a really bad model. Um. And what what Boyd brings back to the table is kind of looking back at like Schwanz or like for most people this would be Sun Tzu, um, and and like how that strategist emphasized like you know know your enemy, din between them, confuse them, um, try to not fight them, you know like those classic sort of aphorisms like the best victory is when you don't even fight them at all like you don't you don't you don't you never fire a damn shot you just confuse them into like making them fall apart on their own on their own time um so he combines that with like you know the, the stuff you saw like in the later part of world war ii like the emergence of like blitzkrieg as like this like uh strategy that focuses on speed and confusion like the the point of blitzkrieg is not to just smash the enemy but to get in inside and behind them to carve up their communication systems and to like again you identify their centers of gravity but what you do is you sever the connections between the centers of gravity so that they shake themselves apart and you break the enemy's like ability and will to fight not necessarily you don't necessarily need to bodily break them. You just make them totally ineffective. It's like um it's like you were like it's it's like you're a- kind of like nerve agents, nervous systems. They're like muscles. They could have the strongest muscles in the world, but it doesn't fucking matter because there's no nervous system left to coordinate them. And so the enemy falls apart without, with fairly minimal sort of stuff. And like, you know, Boyd points out like there's a a time at which we leave behind the klaus model of conflict. Uh, Well, I say we as in like the entirety of the fucking world left that behind, except for us. (laughs) You know, like our models of like the political party and our, our models of Revolutionary conflict are often stuck in that kind of older model. The exception being, um, like I guess, the Maoists and like the kind of guerrilla sort of folks. They they're more in line with Boyd sort of thing. Like Boyd admires that kind of guerrilla style of warfare as an elaboration of Blitzkrieg. Because again, that that like um, that way of like you know you take down a regime by confusing it and like discoordinating its elements and you know making it look incompetent and so you don't, you don't just like throw everything you have at the presidential palace and like hope to win that way so anyway it's, it's just another one of those kind of examples of like our thinking being pretty outdated uh in many ways
1: yeah i'm
3: wondering and um, jumping off of that like one of the questions you wanted to ask was the relationship between cybernetics and like marxist organizations of we as we Come to understand them, Mm -hmm. kind of like this 120 years out of date kind of way of theorizing and wondering what the, I guess, the perhaps concrete applications of cybernetic thinking might be to how we might reform organization. Mm -hmm. Like, how are we doing wrong in terms of organization? I suppose. Yeah. uh, We'd be the
2: investor. So, I I think there's kind of like a three pronged trident uh, that I have in mind here. Three relevant. One is for, um, like, again, if if you want to like uh, change the world for the better, like you want to make an actually better society, one, and especially as Marxists, like we we focus on like production and like the production of life and its its um its preconditions as a major thing. Like, I think this is for me what kind of distinguishes Marxist thought from like my, my other sort of like favorite stuff like anarchism or whatever. Is that like we have we have this quite quite serious um concern for like how how do we actually live like in in this future society like what are the ways you coordinate production and so i think cybernetics is essential there um in that you get blueprints for a bottom-up like distributed planning system uh, that avoids a lot of the kind of problems that we had with um both the like this sort of anarchy of the market and the problems that we had with centralized planning and um, Basically, like if you read again, shortcutting it for the listeners, like just take it on faith that like uh, a smart guy called Stafford Beer basically worked it all out, and we're, we're good to go, <laughs> um, more or less. Um, so that's super relevant for like being able to pitch. Like, what does a what does a kind of maximally liberated like uh, society look like? But also that it doesn't look like anarcho-primitivism or something, where like you get maximum liberation by just collapse. It's like no, we, we take production seriously. We take the coordination of human activity seriously. And again, coordination, cybernetics—you know these are all deeply, deeply linked kind of um, concepts. Um, so that's the forward-looking kind of planning aspect of it. Like we have a we have a proposal for how you could structure a society to be um, like it would it would it would not have the value form. It wouldn't have marks, markets. It wouldn't have any of that kind of kind of shit. But it would also still be like a highly technical society with adequate cooperation and coordination of of systems. Uh, so we won't be like, you know, scrambling through atomic rubble looking for food uh, for, for the rest of our days. Um, the second leg then is uh we're we're clearly up against a system that is cybernetic in nature and that it is it is composed of these tight feedback loops that like a gyroscope, they just keep it they keep it sitting upright or like a like a bicycle, you know, the the way it spins is what keeps it upright um and it gives like basically you can kind of do this whole like combative thing of like studying studying how the enemy system works and identifying its weak points um so much like you know a, a biologist would be able to identify the best way to kill an elephant <laughs> you know it's like if you know elephants really well you know probably how to take them down pretty well um and that's always going to be relevant um for the kind of, task of actually doing revolution. Um, those two tie-, tie together though as well, right? Because like a revolutionary transition would always have this problem of like, how do you maintain steam for a revolutionary ch- transition and actually complete the task of dismantling the other system whilst not starving to death? Because you're always running this huge risk that like, if, you're, if, you're a- if your coordinated activities are too disruptive, you could just completely collapse your like, you know, food and material production supply. In a way that would generate reaction, right? Because this, this is a thing you see quite a few times when things get really hairy. Is when when people start to kind of get kind of hungry. They go, oh "God Almighty, we got to get rid of these fucking anarchists!" You know, <laughs> this this isn't this isn't working out. Um, so I think that those those two prongs are kind of actually tied together in a way because, like, you you could start to find out, you could start to figure out how you do this um, do this transition well. Um, And then the third prong is for our internal organizations, right? Like if we are concerned with, again, if we want to create this like emancipated, like highly democratic kind of horizontal kind of society out the back end, we can't do Leninism to get there. Like the kind of centralized uh, autocratic kind of control of our political organizations is, it's for one thing ineffective, but it's also political cyanide in that, you know, I mean, We're all familiar with it, right? Like you, you get the the spiel from um, Marxists, whatever, and it's like, oh yeah, we're going to have this like, you know, wonderful kind of free, kind of collaborative, democratic kind of process at the end. But then you go along to their meetings, and it's just these fucking dickheads who uh, run the show, and like, there's no actual internal democracy. And then you read the history, and it's like, oh yeah, as as soon as the Bolsheviks got power, they just like took democracy. They took the democratic principles out the back and shot them. and it's like, oh yeah, this is clearly nonsense, right? Like, what reasonable conclusion can anyone possibly come to if that's the evidence they see? Um, so that leaves you with the problem of, like, how how do you actually organize in a way that is um, is like meaningfully democratic and also effective? Um, because, like, maybe it's just the kind of milieu I came kind of came out of, but like, because um, I, I was originally kind of more into like anarchist kind of stuff. Um, and I kind of identified a lot of problems with that, you, even as a like a dumb 18 year old, it kind of became evident that like, um like in a lot of ways, um, the like kind of freedom, collaboration and democracy and all that kind of stuff was kind of it, it almost felt like a kind of dead end thing that like because it was always implied that that would actually be less effective that like so like um, The question would always come up of like, how do we how do we like have effective organization where we can actually get anything done and also keep it democratic? And often the answer was you just kind of shrug and go, well, we we can't figure that out, so we're just gonna like commit to being ineffective but virtuous, you know? Or and the the path the Leninists take is the opposite, where they're committed to being unvirtuous but effective, or like minimally effective. And Bringing this back to cybernetics, like one of the huge kind of insights for like from like Stafford Beer is that like effective systems are y- usually like just to, to one degree or another are actually like mostly bottom up, like um dis- distributed intelligence and like um these kind of like highly collaborative like mixed systems with like horizontal and vertical elements. That's actually typical of highly effective organizations. Um, And, you know, in in his sort of like theoretical framework, it's not like you're trading off effectiveness for autonomy. Like, in order to be effective, you have to have a lot of autonomy in the system. You need you need like autonomous units that have enough coordination um, like infrastructure to help them be autonomous. Right. So that 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 mean effectiveness kind of collapses. Because for Stafford Beer, if you if you if you get one of them right, you'll get the other right. Um, And so that's really something we need to be paying attention to for like as we build our organizations. Like we do actually have some blueprints that that, um, and so like these are like theoretical blueprints that have actually also been validated in practice a good number of times over. And have been studied pretty well, and like, it's it, you know it's, it's there. It's it, it's confirmed this sort of stuff does work, um, and there's no reason why we shouldn't just pick it up because it ticks both of the boxes, right? This is how you build effective organizations that preserve autonomy for their component parts and are meaningfully democratic. And so those are the three. Those are the three angles, that you, and it, it all adds up to a nice tight package, you know.
1: Yeah. One thing I've been really interested in that you just kind of hit on there is like when we've either been doing research about the viable system model or just like anything, especially like second order cybernetics, this idea of like communication as being the kind of vital thing. And it's really been interesting Mm -hmm. because I feel like the way that you're able to kind of like balance autonomy and effectiveness isn't by just having these autonomous units that's just like, oh, dude, just do your own thing, man. But it's like Mm -hmm. they actually have to have a really effective like, I suppose it would be either system two, or system, I suppose it would be system two in a way that is just, like, able to have all of these units, whatever they are, communicate with each other openly and kind of, like, without restraint. Mm-hmm. Would you say that's fair?
2: Yeah, I mean, it's 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 certainly getting in that direction, right? Like, um, the, I guess, like, for the listeners, like, um, the trick here is that, like, we're kind of observed, and again, he's just borrowing his observations from biology and neuroscience, really, but um, that, Um, Organisms, highly developed organisms, tend to have, they tend to be made up of autonomous subsystems. So, like, your heart more or less takes care of itself. Your respiratory system takes care of its own business. um, And so on, like, muscles kind of all basically run themselves. But they have a nervous system that is this kind of like shared information highway for coordinating, right? That, like, there are. There are, the body is mostly made up of autonomous systems, plus this coordination system that helps it to move along. But crucially, like the the brain and the nervous system don't. It's not like they all actually went to beat. The heart keeps track of its own beat, and then the nervous system is saying a little bit more, please, a little bit less, please. Um, and like we, we, you also have like you know, there's there's parts of the kind of like nervous system that are like, um, how to put this? It's like uh, again, like so, your blood oxygen level is a variable that the whole thing is trying to control for. You don't want too much or too little, but the way it achieves that, like balance, is is very emergent, right? Because it's it's not like you know the the little Stalin in the brain decides the exact num a uh, number of oxygen fucking molecules per per milligram that are going to be in the blood, and then the five year plan kicks in and then everything fucking sails, right? No, instead you've got You've got like a, syst- a, a loop in the nervous system that's saying, "Give me as much oxygen as possible," and then you've got a counter loop that's saying, "No, no, 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 that shit's poisonous. <laughs> like that, that shit's fucking toxic. Don't give me too much of it." And the actual level that you get is kind of suspended between those two, like uh, kind of antagonistic loops that are feeding back on each other. And again, the cybernetics, like the feedback, it's like these two two complex systems that are in this kind of dynamic interaction, and the result is. The stability of the overall system, but it emerges from the interaction of parts. It, it's like the, the stability and the like flourishing of the organism is not something that's decided from above, it's something that emerges bottom up and is coordinated collaboratively between these, these like subsystems of the body. And the same thing happens in the brain, right? Like, in terms of like organizing, and this is, I'm going to try to tie this back to like what it means for like our kind of organizations right but like if you think of like the way the brain processes sensory input um you get this like flood of sensory data through all these different channels and there's parts of the brain that kind of like squash it down and like you know make it into more shaped kind of stuff like they they reduce the variety of the input um and they funnel it upwards and then there's you know a little little subsystem called the amygdala which goes oh my god holy shit that's a snake quick run away and then there's the hippocampus, which says, no, 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 that's a garden house. That's fine. We already recognize that. And so you, you've got this interaction um, and then like you know that, that that signal eventually emerges in the conscious mind as like, oh, I, I felt a little bit startled there for a second and I don't know why, but I, I see a garden house. You know, this this sort of thing. So again, even in the brain, it's like a collaborative thing. You have various systems that are doing specialized things, and the overall result emerges. From the interaction of the things, um, and I mean, sometimes you know the amygdala goes fucking ballistic, and you know you just get like weirdly stressed out for no reason, but you can't you can't you can't articulate why, or um, your memory fails, and that's a different sort of thing. Oh, um, weird!
1: I don't think I have any experience with that. That's strange.
2: No, <laughs> uh, might have burnt, might have burnt it out at some point. Uh, it's not <laughs> um, but the the emphasis there is on like the collaboration and stuff like that, and like why why is that interesting to us, right? It's in cybernetics, there's this principle called like Ashby's law of requisite variety, which states that like a regulator needs approximately as much variety as the situation it's regulating in order to be successful at it, right? So um, like a, a prototypical kind of regulator would be a thermostat, like so in general, we refer to these devices as homeostats. They're things that keep us something stable, right? They stabilize the situation. And a, sp- a specific example of a homeostat is a thermostat, and we're all familiar with them. So, you've got a little tank of water with a heating element or whatever, and there's a thermostat rigged up and it's set to a certain target temperature. And you know, if the if the um, it has a sensor and if it detects that it's you know it, it has a goal and if it detects that its performance is actually deviating from the goal, it fires up the heater or it fires up the cooling unit or whatever and tries to bring them back in. And you can imagine how. Like a shitty thermostat would do a really bad job of that. Right. So imagine a sensor where it couldn't detect the actual temperature. It could only detect like up or down, <laughs> as in like either the temperature is too high or it's too cold. And that's that's like a one-bit channel, right? And you could you could you just just, just like play with it in your head and you're just like, of course, that thing would be wildly unstable. Because the the variety of the Regulator is just way too low, and it's it's it, the variety of its communication channels is far too low. Okay, let's get a better one. Let's say it can detect ten degree Celsius increments. And it's like yeah, that's better, but it's still fucking terrible, right? Like, like I mean, in one degree Celsius and nine degrees, like that's fucking dreadful. It would do a better job than the first one, but you know, it's still not great. And then now now say okay, it can detect them in one degree increments or in like you know, a 10th of a degree, and we're, we're, we're into acceptable territory here, because now you can imagine nothing actually performing pretty well at keeping the thing stable. Um, and then you think, well, how would, how would we make this better, right? Like it's, it's communication channels are good. Maybe if it had memory, you know, if it remembered that at about 4 p.m. every day, somebody tends to open a window and the room gets a bit colder, it might be able to remember that and adjust for that and like predictively Fire up the heaters ahead of time and all this sort of stuff. So you, you can see how adding more of these kind of like capacities brings it, it brings the regulator up to the level of being able to deal with the thing adequately. Um, so, okay, fine. But like th- thermostats are, and like water heaters and this kind of stuff are pretty simple things, right? But like human societies are incredibly complex. Like you, you think of the, the sheer variety of that kind of thing, it's actually un- You would need. In order to like compute the state of like all of human society at a given snapshot moment, you would need you would need to convert everything in the universe into a computer in order to compute that state. And by the time you're finished computing it, it would be out of date. Right? Like your, your insight would now be completely irrelevant because it would have taken so long to do it that the situation would have moved. And also, because you converted the entire world into a computer you have to model the computer because it's part of the world you're trying to model right We get back to the kind of recursive problem that's the second order of cybernetics, right like seeing that the observer the, the writer is actually a, in, in this trying to regulate like the observer is part of the is part of the system. Um, and so like S- Stafford Beer kind of applies Ashby's law to human like social organization. And comes to the kind of obvious conclusion that, like, if if humans if human beings are hypercomplex entities, and societies of human beings are, you know, hypercomplex to the power of a hundred or whatever entities, then, you know, the it's going to be kind of intractable trying to like control these things from outside or trying to do this kind of like external dominance. The only thing that's really capable of regulating that kind of system is the thing itself. So, a human so the only thing that's capable of regulating human society is human society. And right now in our world, we can in capitalism, we can see the pathologies that emerge when we have a control system that isn't that. Right? Like our control system, our equivalent of a thermostat is the fucking market <laughs> and the value form. And they're very, very low variety, right? Price signals are extremely narrow Information carriers that are not capable—they're—they're like, they're like the shitty thermostat we had earlier. They're—they're they're not sufficient at all to actually regulate things, and we, we know this, right? Like we're, we're Marxists. We—we just have to look around and observe this stuff as well. That, um, that's there. Um,
1: Can I just jump in well, and say, yeah, sure. that like, Dan and I actually kind of came across this recently when it kind of hit us that like we were kind of like trying to come to a form an answer to the question of like why is the the liberation of the working class the work of the working class itself mm-hmm. right like why can it never be something from above whether that's like a Leninist party yes. or like you know some like I don't know some other lame thing like the Fabians or mm-hmm. something like that like why is it that these don't work and it is we realize that it is just like the law of requisite variety right it's like yeah. because you just can't regulate something like
2: that
1: mm-hmm.
3: it blew my mind. For it's the same with like the party right mm-hmm. if the, the, the party needs to be if we're going to form the party mm-hmm. where like it needs to be made up of, it needs to be representative of society as a whole. It can't be something external mm-hmm. to it. It needs to be, and it's sort of practice needs to be predicated on its being part of society rather than being outside of and then trying to like control society. Yeah. I, feel like, I feel like the Marxists, like maybe like second international Marxism or the Marxism of Karl Marx sort of knew these mm-hmm. cyber insights before there was cyber mm-hmm. kind of, and like the history of Leninism and then Stalinism was kind of like
2: with lost these. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think that's, that's definitely on the right track there, right? That like um the only the only kind of organization that really has any hope of being able to like track the situation cleanly um is this kind of like bottom up coordinated, collaborative and emergent kind of like system of interactions. Much much like when we were talking about the brain earlier, right? That like the the ultimate kind of outcome depends on these like dynamic interactions of largely autonomous parts kind of in conversation with each other so like amygdala says holy shit that's a snake um, hippocampus says no it's a garden house dialogue it's a dialectic if you will you know um, and that the, the the result emerges from and it's the only real way to do that because like if if like the nervous system was totally centralized it would be wildly ineffective because it would just never be; it wouldn't have the complexity required to deal with the outside world. Because like we're complex objects, but we deal with an even more complex world. And the only way we can survive that is by making our internal structure fairly complex as well. It's why complex beings like mammals are much more effective in their environments than amoeba. You know, like an amoeba is a very simple thing, and it can only process so much information and it's not surprising that something vastly larger and vastly more complex than that would have vastly larger capacities. Um, and all of that is in contrast to the kind of model we often inherit, right? Like where, oh no, like correct action and correct decision-making just happens in one person's brain as if as if that one person could ever actually understand in anywhere close to enough of the world to act effectively, you know? um it's 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 really laughable when you get into the like information theory systems theory cybernetic stuff and like you start to just realize like these aren't just like political kind of arguments they're not just like arguments of like preference of how to structure things they're they're things you can do a science on and come up with like conclusive like explanations for why that just can't work like you know, if if you're a Leninist in this century, you're barking up the wrong fucking tree entirely, um, and I can, I can prove it with math, motherfuckers. You know, <laughs> <laughs>
1: hey, or the last century.
2: <laughs> yeah, I mean, what would, would have still been irrelevant in that century, you know? Um, yeah. But the upside is, it like okay, so we, we can kind of slay our sacred cows and kind of be very disappointed about it and do our little dialectic of defeat sort of sad moping for a while. But then we can come out of it and go, "Hey, look, fuck it. We do actually have tools that can help us build, like going forward, and we can, you know, ground our understanding of human societies and like political organizing, ground that in like solid theory that actually has a hope of working, and experiment because again, like cybernetics is very experimental. It's one of the things is really that the only way you can find out how something turns out is to do it and to find out that way, you know." Like so, it's uh, this. The, in the history of cybernetics, you get a lot of this, like really playful sort of like um, disposition of like, hey, look, let's let's run an experiment, let's smash these two things together and see how they actually interact. And it's like, oh well, that, that went well in this way or that way. Use that learning to feed back onto the process. Do a different thing next time. And so, I don't know. Like, I, I think I think on the left, often we kind of do we, ha- we have an experimental mindset, but by accident. Like, we kind of just we're perpetually disappointed and we're kind of perpetually sad about how things turn out. Um, and I think with going through a cybernetic lens or just a systems theory lens, we can be more deliberate about that and realize that, like, yes, it is true that we, we just can't know how things turn out ahead of time. So we have to have this experimental mindset and we have to be not as surprised when things don't work out and not get quite so depressed about it and just accept that like, hey, fuck it, you know, experiments, they can't all be good. Um you know, sometimes sometimes you get the uranium, sometimes the uranium gets you. Um and uh and go forward from there, you know?
3: Sounds a bit like we have a theory, but we haven't quite worked out how to test it in a way that proves it correct yet. And maybe we mm-hmm. not
1: try to prove that theory right, yeah. So. yeah. It's 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 all very interesting. I mean like where I suppose a lot of this just happens to like trot sex and stuff, right? Because of the organization, but also just because of how detached everybody is from anything. Mm-hmm. Like, when you look at all of the like strikes and everything that have gone on in America mm-hmm. and all over the world, right? Because of COVID and everything and working conditions, it's like, mm-hmm. well, the left wasn't involved in that at all. So, like these things are just going to keep yeah. happening. It would be nice to kind of like slap this organizational structure, I suppose, over mm-hmm. the top of the like, I, that kind of brings me on like where exactly where do we go if we have these like organizational blueprints? Like, what is what is what is the next step, right? We have this theory, and the movement is clearly there. Like, I mean, workers are still just being screwed over. So, what, what is next? Um,
2: I mean, my my personal kind of disposition is that we we just basically forget about the fucking left entirely. Like, all all the trots, all the fucking weirdos, just fuck them. Just forget those fucking people ever existed. Like they're as irrelevant as fucking monarchists in Ireland now like just it they can have their preferences but nobody fucking gives a shit and they're never going to be relevant like there there are people in the republic of ireland who love the queen and they're diehard monarchists and they don't fucking matter because the situation has moved and this this is the thing like like cybernetics is all, so often concerned with situations that move hyper complex situations where we are complex individuals embedded in complex environments, the environment is moving. We are moving like the steersman on the ocean, and you gotta fucking go with it. Um, so, uh, on the upside, like um, there does seem to be workers' militancy on the up, somewhat on the up. Like it's it's tentative and all that kind of stuff. But like, go to that. Go go to where the workers are. Go to go to worker militancy, and. Don't fucking mention the value form. Don't fucking mention Trotsky or anyone to them. Just say like, hey, if you're going to try to unionize the, your fucking workplace, um, you know, hey, look, th- there is some literature on how you do how unions happen and all that kind of stuff, right? Like, there's we can we can certainly learn from from the the past of the the workers movement and the socialist movement, but also like, hey, if we're going to form like a, an organizing cell for this, like, hey, there's you know, this this viable system model has been applied again and again in practice by like. Uh, co-ops and you know all kinds of little organizations it's worked out for them let's use this as our like organization in the suitcase uh, thing to to do that and the, especially because the viable system model is recursive so like each unit is made up of um like again like it's autonomous units that are coordinated by a kind of nervous system and then that forms an autonomous unit that you step up to the next level of the ladder and it's Form it forms another layer, so that's it's ideal for the kind of thing we kind of need to do where you you form you know teams which eventually cohere into larger units, which eventually cohere into larger units, which cohere into larger units, and you know, like um, that's that's just going to be so important, right? Like having having the ability to organize effectively, autonomously, and collaborate effectively. With other autonomous units, and have the result of that be a kind of higher level coherence that can then cohere effectively with you know more and more of the same thing. Um, you would get that kind of recursive like tree structure of um, of cells of cells of cells and so on. And that's that's just going to be so much more effective because it can absorb the variety on the ground. Like the autonomous units have the ability to deal with their own situations effectively. They have the communications infrastructure and kind of protocols to collaborate effectively with with their, their sibling units. Um, you know, another big part of the VSM is like how the system responds to alarm signals. So like, um, you know, again, in, in the body, you know, the nervous system filters a lot of information coming up from the body through the brainstem, but there's side channels where if something goes badly wrong, an organ just screams and goes, fuck, and there's an alarm signal and suddenly everything's lit up, and the, the body is able to coordinate a response to whatever happened. Um, that's something beer embeds in the VSM as well, right? Like that, there has to be ways for the um, the system to respond respond to alarms and emergent kind of um, things. And all of that is super super relevant for what we're trying to do.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. You have sold me, June. I'm gonna I'm gonna burn <laughs> all of my. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna say June told me to
2: do it. <laughs> Yeah, no, there's, there's, I don't know, there's still, there's still definitely something to be learned from the old literature, but I think we have to approach it very critically, and like, go back to this sort of stuff and like take what we can, but I, I don't know, like I would almost say that like we should be kind of, we should be kind of be reading, we should be reading a lot of the Marxist kind of stuff as like basically like forget almost everything that came after Marx, like just 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 read Marx, it's it's almost all there and it's it's solid in there but i don't know treat that as almost secondary at this point right because like it's it's one thing to understand how the the law of value works but that doesn't help you terribly much with, with like organizing against it you know and for organizing against it it would probably be more fruitful to understand things like entropy like how do like when when you when you have some activity ongoing it tends to generate Kind of waste heat that that clogs up the engine, and like you know, it's like oh well, that sounds a lot like burnout. You know, we we all are all familiar with that. And like the value form stuff wouldn't help you terribly much with like you know keeping the entropy low in your organization. You know, it's this there's there's a lot of a lot of stuff that it really pays to um to understand. Um, also like I mean, uh, like our enemies understand this pretty well. Like you know. Uh, like the bourgeoisie and like just even like the bosses and stuff are pretty good at coordinating themselves. It's not like they're using, it's not like they're consciously using cybernetics, but that's because I think a lot of the lessons of cybernetics just got absorbed into common sense over the years. And so for a lot of people, like just the notion of like using feedback on yourself and your organization to adjust course, it's not even really a very, crazy insight anymore it's just like a very bog standard right and so like if you're organizing against the bosses like your bosses are going to be using continuous learning and feedback on their own organization and they'll they'll adapt and adjust strategies based on what you do like we can't afford to not be adaptive because like again with ashby's law right like um it's like a corollary of ashby's law that like when you're when you're kind of dealing with two systems the one with the Larger repertoire of actions available to it will tend to win out. You know, it's um, so like maybe a way of like giving an example of that is you imagine a game of chess, right? Like the two players have exactly the same repertoire of moves available, presuming they're at the same skill level, right? And so you, you, an evenly matched game of chess, it's like a it coin toss as to who's going to win. You, you would find it hard to predict who's who's going to win it. But then you see, okay, match a grandmaster against an amateur. It's like, oh, clearly the grandmaster has a wider repertoire of moves, of like adaptations and like strategies available, and the the amateur doesn't by comparison because they're just a learner. Um, okay, that's a clear example. Now consider another example where um, one of the players is allowed to pick strategies and change strategies dynamically, but the other player has to write down their strategy first and then stick to it. And then you can also see how that that player would. Lose almost almost certainly right like the, robbing them of that dynamism would um make make it just like they couldn't possibly win the game or another variation would be um you know this this player can't move any of their knights leftward on the board <laughs> you know like you, you, the restrictions all are always work out worse right like so if you're if you're up against someone who is willing and able to adjust their tactics and strategy, you kind of need to be able to match their dynamism. And that, that's, that sounds bad for us, because like, oh, how the fuck are we ever gonna match that? But like, remember with the bosses, there's things they'll never do. They'll never under- undermine their own profits and they'll never willingly undermine their own power, which means they do have their their hands tied in some regards, right? And isn't it interesting that we can get to that realization via, like, cybernetics, information theory, game theory? Right, like we can go we can go the Ashby beer route to get there. But it's a very similar conclusion to what you'd get from the socialist tradition, analyzing the same situations. Right, that like we need to have variety of tactics and variety of strategy, and we need to recognize the ways in which the opponent has their hands tied in certain respects right and so you can see the resonance again there right like imagine imagine taking these two theoretical frameworks and these two like practices of like how to do reasoning about action as you do it right and mesh them together and you can you can learn from both of them um
1: Yeah, that's absolutely fascinating. That's like, yeah, that's really interesting. Mm -hmm. I've never thought about the different ways that you can actually get to the same conclusions using just like I don't know, because it's funny because it's like Mm -hmm. when you say it out loud. I was going to say, wow, it's weird that you can get to the same conclusions about societies when you actually Mm -hmm. study the way that these systems work. But it's like
2: there's there's huge, there's huge utility in like having shortcuts. That's kind of what science really is, right? That like once you've learned, um. Like, once you've figured something out, it's a cognitive shortcut thereafter, right, because like, if you think of, like, I don't know, pre-scientific explanations for gravitation, right? It's all sorts of shit, like, oh, the ancestor spirits are in the ground, and they love us so much that they pull us close to them, and, like, maybe God just made the universe in a way that favors up and down directions. I don't fucking know. Who knows? And then, then Newton comes along Those goes, big, large masses attract, and it clicks into fucking places, it's like, oh, my God, motherfucker, like, everything makes sense now. And you can skip all the, after that point, you you can skip all the horseshit. You don't have to fucking think about that because, like, every goddamn problem that's related to gravitation, whether it's like shit falling down or orbital mechanics, you just remember large masses. That's it. That's the shortcut. That's the thing that gets you to the fucking target immediately. And you don't have to struggle with it anymore. And you go from like a world in which every goddamn thing you do that has anything to do with gravity is, is just a new, fresh fucking hell every time because you have to figure it all out from scratch. But then you, you, you get you do the science you get like the principles of it nailed down you're you're golden you're good to go. I like to I like to kind of um, I liken it to like pre scientific bridge building and architecture because like before they had physics and math and stuff worked out people could build bridges and buildings and all kinds of stuff right like it was yeah you know, perfectly capable of building them, but the way they built them was it was kind of long trial and error. Stuff like you kind of just tried a bunch of stuff and didn't terribly understand why it worked. It's like, why does this bridge stay up? I don't, I don't know. And like, should we try a different design? Oh God, no! Like, we don't know, we don't know what the fuck it's going to do, you know? Um Once, like, once you discover the arch, it's like, okay, don't touch it. Like, just, we're we're doing this one design of arches from now on because that's what that's what my you know the the apprentice was taught by the teacher, and that's what the that teacher was taught by. Their teacher and so on, all the way back through antiquity, and so yeah, people could build stuff, but it was like a kind of inherited tradition that was just kind of like ah, it's it's unsatisfying, right? Like we can we can get things done, but not very well, and crucially, we couldn't work out ahead of time what was likely to work in practice. And then you get physics, you get math, you get like the you get gravitation, you get all these underpinnings that suddenly means you can design a bridge on paper ahead of time without without lifting a fucking finger to put a stone in place. And you can be pretty sure that's going to work or not. And you can point to it and explain why it's not going to work or why it will work. And that saves you so much effort. So post-scientific bridge building, you get the same bridges, basically. But now you have confidence that you can actually do them well. You have confidence you can adapt to new designs, right? Because like with a pre-scientific bridge building, if you took somebody who was accustomed to making bridges out of stone and then just teleported them to a part of the world that could only deal with wood, like, I don't know, there's no stone around, it's all just, like, soil and, and trees, they'd be lost, you know? It's like, how the fuck do I make a bridge out of wood? It's crazy, you know, I've only ever done it with stone. But post-scientific, you just go, yeah, sure, show me the equations, it's fine, you know? You you got rubber? Yeah, fuck it. Let's we'll make a bridge out of rubber. No problem, you know. Um, what like packing foam? Yeah, I could make a bridge out of packing foam. Um, you know, and I th- I think we really need this kind of like scientific revolution in our in our kind of thought. If, if we take this kind of like emancipatory process seriously, we kind of got to be serious about it and be scientific and help ourselves get to a point where we have. A bit more confidence that what we're talking about is actually like correct. Like, like the bridge will actually stand up. Um because the yeah, the the pre-scientific situation just isn't that good.
1: Yeah. I'm wondering on that Ed, I, I have you I know a lot of your uh podcasting colleagues have been reading specifically yeah. Tom read the uh fundamental principles book and yeah. had, Blown. Have you have you uh, had much interaction with that book? And if so, kind of how can you imagine that holding up with kind of like a cybernetic system of organization?
2: Yeah i uh, I, I read it I read it I think straight through in like two afternoons um, when I when I got it, and uh, it seems to check out. Um, uh, I would need to reread it, but like yeah, it all it all seemed there was nothing jumped out at me as problematic. Like a lot of it, um, a lot of it gelled, you know, with um, like, i th- I think you could just like you know plug the v s m into that and you'd be kind of good to go um in many respects like it's still with this like you know you still have to like try it and experiment and see how things turn out but like it's a i think a pretty solid foundation from which to begin those kind of experiments, yeah. On mm-hmm. else?
3: have questions? <laughs> no, I don't think so. It's all been illuminating and enjoyable. So.
1: Yeah, this has been absolutely fascinating, June. Like, we don't want to, you know, there they go again. We don't want to waste too much more of your time, but um, yeah, I good. think, yeah, I think what you've suggested in terms of reading and going on from what we started with, which is like, you know, baby steps with uh, People's Republic mm-hmm. and um, moving on to so like, seven so revolutionaries so and now with the Matron umbrella, we
2: mm-hmm.
1: really get it. Talk
2: too much about which I'm kind of glad because I feel like I'm still wrapping my head around that book. But um Yeah, that's a, yeah book. It's it, you know like that, that book is a lot. It's um uh it it's it's relevant, but it's um I don't know, it, it's it's the sort of stuff that's not like immediately applicable. It just it gives you a nice kind of foundation in the kind of by bi- I guess like the sort of biological roots and like the neuroscience roots of cybernetics and systems theory. Um and, like, yes, some, some of it is certainly, like, it's, it, it helps to get the pump going, like, to, like, start thinking about how these kind of things apply to, like, because, like, by, by the end of the book, they're getting towards, like, uh, linguistics as a technology of social coordination and, like, how social organisms coordinate their lives and all that sort of stuff. So it, it gets into territory that we, we care about, but um, it's a kind of an, it's a bit of an odd duck, that one.
1: Yeah, there's also oh, just enough stuff where you're like, does this ma- does this actually make sense? Is this actually how things work? Where you actually want to keep reading yeah. stuff? So, I think yeah. yeah,
2: it's a bit of a brain melter. Um,
1: <laughs> yeah, it definitely is. Yeah. I couldn't figure out if it was like absolutely genius or the most like hippy dippy stuff I've ever read. I it's it, there's a scared. lot of
2: hippy, there's a lot of hippie in there, but um, it's quite good actually. Like, um, uh, Beer was like he worked kind of with Matarana and Vareya. Like he he wrote what the introductions to one of their books. Beer was highly inspired by their work. So there was a lot of cross-pollination there. Where they kind of diverge actually was that um, Maturana and Varea were less certain that these same principles were applicable like above the level of the organism, like for, for like societies or like groups of organisms, whereas Beer was convinced that that's the case, like that the, the ladder keeps going from like cell to tissue to organ to organ. To society forms and up from there, whereas they were a bit more kind of like yeah, I don't fucking know, but like they were they were biologists first and foremost, so that might have just been them sticking to their lane um, in a way. Having said that, like they were happy to publish the introduction that Beer wrote for them, in which he you know went off on a big tangent about that sort of stuff. So like they didn't object to it, but um, it's um, it's a fascinating book for your audience. I think if anyone's like curious about the style it, but there's one reading I would definitely recommend. It's "Designing Freedom" by Stafford Beer. It's a very short little book that you know. Uh, it, it's it's one which he's 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 pitching the idea that like you know society's ills could be solved by a revolutionary transformation, like a, a cyber communist kind of revolution, basically. Um, and it's 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 available free online. If you Google for it, you can get a PDF off of archive.org. Um, also it's just a very short little pamphlet anyway. That and, and it's written for a layperson audience. It's not a technical book. Uh, so if anyone's curious about where to go on this, I would strongly recommend starting with designing freedom as your your kind of on-ramp um into this stuff.
1: Awesome. Yeah, I think that was one Dan and I we we both skimmed before. Yeah, we should actually
3: take yeah, yeah. a proper look at it. There is also a recording of those as lectures, I think, so you can actually yes. listen to him read it. Maybe it's not, maybe it's a bridge or something. He has a very excellent
2: voice. Uh, actually, they are originally lectures, actually. Like uh, it was a lecture series for the CBC, the Massey lectures. Um, he got he got that gig uh, basically immediately after the um, the coup in Chile in '73. So like in '74, he was delivering those lectures, and it's all reflections on. That failed revolution and like his kind of like his radicalization after that. It was, like he was already a pretty radical kind of guy, but like that that experience of um working in Chile on Project Cybersyn and then having it be crushed by um by the fascists really sent him over the edge into radicalization. Um there's there's a wonderful line from one of those lectures that I, I absolutely loved, um, where he says, um, if I'm remembering it correctly, that like Every time we hear that a proposal will destroy society as we know it, we should be brave enough to say thank God at last.
1: <laughs> yeah, that kicks so uh,
2: much ass. That's so good. He kicks ass so bad. It's so good in that thing. That's it's it's really intense. Um so yeah, that's that's my recommendation for the on ramp. Um
1: cool. Well, that's yeah, that's really awesome, I think. Yeah, I've been feeling a little bit of like stagnation and burnout recently for various mm. Uh, reasons in terms of, like, organization and stuff like that, and also just exposure to um, sex. Um, (laughs) But, uh, yeah, I think that this is all Mm -hmm. extremely refreshing, and it's, like, man, all it took was, like, actually getting out of the, like, Marxology, like, which is all important, and it's, I don't know, Dan and I are doing that shit, so it's it's great, but, yeah.
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, like, I'm I'm a dyed-in-the-wool Marxist, like, but, like, um, you got to do this thing where you like inject variety, like that's 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 how I mean, like so living organisms survive by constantly ingesting new energy and new information, like filtering it and like absorbing it and sorting it and then ejecting the bad stuff out the back. Um, And the the same goes for minds, you know, and the same goes for like societies of of minds, right? Like, um, I think the only way we can keep these kinds of projects fresh is to like constantly have like fresh sources of energy and information being pumped in. To like be recombined with, you have to do this constant recombination process. Um, so yeah, I mean, yeah, as you said, like stagnation, like it's it's bad stuff. Um, stagnation it, it, bad. It, what I'm it, it sickens you, you know, when, when you find yourself in that kind of scenario where you just just feel like, oh my god, like it's it's all it's so stagnant and everything's so stale. You just yeah. go, um, yeah, read something else and inject that back in.
1: Yeah, yeah, You read some, mm-hmm. read some sons of your fucking dorks, your nerds. Yeah. <laughs> read read anything.
2: Right. You know, read a cookbook.
1: Read anything. Yeah, hey, read yeah. your book. Yeah. Um, do you have any fiction recommendations, speaking of which?
2: Uh, yeah, um, I've been reading a lot of um, uh, Borges recently. You familiar uh, with recordings? Yeah, um, yeah.
1: My my uh, guy that I work with and my wife actually just suggested that I
2: read it. A- mm, yeah, some really strong stuff in there. Um, I, I love the just the, like the cognitive maximalism that like he kind of plays with. Um, and oh, I don't know what else have i been reading. Uh, I don't really. I don't read a lot of fiction actually. Um. Uh, yeah, I don't know, uh, Borges is the only one that stands out as a, as a big recent thing.
1: Official GIU fiction recommendation, got it. Thank
2: very you very much. You <laughs> much. <laughs>
1: <laughs> cool. well, thank you so much again. This has been absolutely, like, absolutely illuminating. And I hope it is for our audience, too. Um,
2: oh, and yeah.
1: Yeah, I think Dan and I have been looking for an answer, like, where do we go? What do we do now? Where, where are we being led to with all of this research?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, hey, here's mm-hmm. something new. So,
2: um, yeah, I, I think the path forward is to try to understand the world, um, and that means like understanding systems, understanding organisms, and how societies of organisms actually function. Um, and yeah, getting getting basics of like physics and information theory into you is never a bad idea. Um, that that'll always be fruitful, you know.
1: Cool. Well, um, I we have definitely a much smaller audience. And I would imagine most of our audience actually already know general and elect Unit. But if there's anything other than general and elect Unit that you'd like to plug, for any reason, that would be the time. I guess that's
2: what people do. Yeah. Um, so we're also part of the Emancipation Network. Um, so like our sister shows, uh, Swanside Chats, From Alpha to Omega, uh, Jumpsuit Utopia, and Mortal Science are all they're all fantastic, and they all they all share a kind of like similar like technical. Uh, sort of disposition um and a a general forward looking kind of um orientation like we're we're less concerned with excavating the past or like redeeming history and much more concerned with what we're going to do from now on um so they're all wonderful and check those out and the other the other like show that's been really just blowing my mind is um fight like an animal uh by arnold schroeder that's absolutely fantastic um Uh, yeah like evolutionary science and like neuroscience and stuff like that um and like trying to draw out like politics as a basically a biological phenomenon or as a material like organic phenomenon that like um it's like uh he's ended up in a really wonderful place where um he's able to say that like and i'm paraphrasing something from a later episode here but like it gives you a flavor of what's going on there that like a lot of leftists kind of pin their political identity to particular time periods, like oh, I'm a 1917 kind of Marxist, or I'm a you know 1921 sort of Marxist, whatever. Whereas Arnold sees himself as part of a political tradition that began 30 million years ago, and that like, or organisms have always like struggled for more of life for themselves, and like that that goes all the way through like. Proto-apes through like bonobos and chimpanzees. You you see the same kind of thing where they they engage in conflict to vanquish uh, tyrants within their little societies. And the, the human story is a continuation of that arc. So it's, it's like a it's a very long sweep of history, which is nice because it means that like, you know, the hope of an egalitarian politics or like change for human societies is not not impossible because it's happened a long it's happened a lot of times across a huge stretch of history prehistory. it's it's happened all the way through the evolution of the species and um we're not like i don't know we're not like barking up the wrong tree or anything you know it's it's not it's not like a our, our desire for emancipation is not a sort of like recent affectation or some sort of um quirk or like a diversion it's actually something that you know our our very primitive ancestors were engaged in as well um, when they like you know accosted the the, uh, the like head the the head ape of the tribe and bashed his head in and uh, made a made a sort of ape democracy instead you know as we we have a lot of the political tradition that we share with those um, those creatures cool well the construction guys are back up
1: doing their thing again outside probably, but um Again, thank you so much, Julie. And um, yeah, I'm a little like you. It's perhaps maybe my favorite podcast, so everybody should
2: (laughs) check it out. Yeah, thanks very much for having me.